Welcome to the Shades of Hope podcast. This is a frank conversation between two friends who care deeply about the case for racial justice as it's presented in the gospel. In this podcast, we'll cover where racial justice shows up in the Bible, why it's important for pastors to be in conversation, God's urgency for this work, and how the church can start conversations for the work of racial justice. everyone. It's good to be with you. My name is Jeff Krajewski. I'm one of the pastors at Common Ground Christian Church in Indianapolis, Indiana, and it is my pleasure to be joined by my good friend and mentor and pastor here in the city with me, Pastor Clarence Moore. Yes, thank you. I'm Pastor Clarence C. Moore, Middle Initial C of the New Era Church here in the great city of Indianapolis, and I am humbled to call Pastor Jeff, one of my spiritual sons, he and I are trying to take a predominantly African-American church and a predominantly white church and to create common ground in this new era. Well said. You're good at what you do, putting words together and inspiring people. <laughs> and one of the things that got us together is the conversation on race and faith and why it's an important conversation for Christians, particularly white evangelical Christians, to be having. And we started these conversations a long time ago, but just recently with the uh, events in our country around race, particularly with George Floyd, has spiked an awareness and a response that, at least in my lifetime, seems unique in terms of response to racial injustices. And I heard a quote from Jamar Tisby, author of The Color of Compromise, historian. He tweeted back in the summer of 2020, he tweeted, this time seems different. Referring to the response that we saw in the streets. I'm wondering if you agree with that. And if so, what differences, Pastor, do you see about this particular moment? As someone who's experienced a lot of racial ups and downs throughout your lifetime and as a pastor of a predominantly African-American congregation, I'm interested in how you're feeling about this time. Yeah, I think Jamar is onto something. I do sense that our country has been in a place like this, and this is why I say this. Number one, I don't know if we've ever had a chance to really look each other in the face as black brothers and sisters and white brothers and sisters and really talk about racism and white privilege. So where we've always had that wound, but we had this scab over it. And we haven't quite healed because we haven't opened the scab. And why I think this is different is that it is more conversational also Black people are at a place in America that they weren't at in Dr. King's day. We have black people in places like a vice president or a few years ago, a president, now a defense secretary. So we have people now that are in high places in America, and it's going to be very difficult and very painful for us to go back to the depths of injustices that we saw decades ago. So I do think because of the place and the progress of the black race, 
and because of the conversations out in the open, we saw racism on display. You know, these cell phones and these cameras are doing a lot to expose that little black girl that held that camera as that policeman put his knee on that young man's neck. She stood there eight minutes and filmed that whole thing. That is what changes. That's why I think it's different. Thirdly, young white youth are very involved in trying to make justice a reality. That's another difference. It's seeing our young white people join hands. And I think in a few weeks, we're going to have the Asians out there also with the way things are going. Yeah. Yeah. We're recording this just a week after the mass shooting in Atlanta, the horrific mass shooting horrific in Atlanta and are still grappling with the causes of that sort of behavior and on the heels then in Boulder. Can I say one more thing? Mm -hmm. I think I'm seeing more individuals like you, Pastor Jeff, who are willing to take the risk to really go deeper in relationship with an African-American pastor. I know we're going to drill down on that some a little later in our time together. But I think I see more of you coming to the top, which is really critical. Yeah, because you guys have the prophetic voice. And thank you. Uh, You have made it incredibly easy for me to walk down this road as hard as this road is. I can't imagine doing it without the wisdom and compassion and grace that you have shown me in our conversations. And I think part of the reason we wanted to do this podcast was to let the public in on our process and how we've been working through these very challenging conversations. And we know a lot of white pastors in white, predominantly white spaces. And we feel this urgency somewhat because of proximity. (laughs) Yeah. My church is located in a geography that has 50% of the neighborhoods African-American, 50% of the neighborhood is white, 50% of the neighborhood is poorer, 50% of the neighborhood is affluent. And so our church sits at an intersection where our ears and eyes are tuned a little bit differently. But why is this an urgent conversation from your perspective for our brothers and sisters who would inhabit predominantly white spaces? Why is this also an urgent moment for them in dealing with the justice part of the gospel? That's a great question. I often think that to be a complete, effective basketball player, not only do you have to learn how to dribble, but you also have to learn how to pass the ball. You have to learn how to shoot. You have to learn how to be in position so that you can help your team succeed. And I think to my white brothers, I think that there's been a missing tool that they have not developed. We've developed our ecclesiology. We have developed our pneumatology and we've developed our anthropology to some extent, but we haven't developed this arena that I believe Jesus really wanted us to see. And that is loving thy brother as thyself and not avoiding those very difficult conversations around justice. I think those white schools that you guys went to, they didn't talk too much about social justice. 
and I, I want to say this because I know someone's listening and saying, well, I don't get into politics. I'm not talking about politics. This is mm-hmm. not a Republican or Democrat issue. Come on. This is a Christian issue. It breaks God's heart when we are not together. And so I would say to my brothers and sisters who are out in the wonderful plush suburbs who have very few, uh, if you do have some African-American members, you know, they're kind of in a quasi-privileged state themselves. God is looking for us to be true to the whole word. And I would ask that they would, again, not leave that part of their calling undone. Yeah, I come from the white spaces that you are describing. I grew up in those suburb places and went to the school that didn't talk about the heart of God for justice in the world. And I think that we have somehow allowed ourselves to pull apart the fullness of the gospel of reconciliation, which is reconciling ourselves to God, but also reconciling ourselves to our fellow humans. And for some reason, that became the dribbling part, to use your metaphor, that wasn't necessarily all that important. We just were all about the spiritualized understanding of what God was doing in the world. And we forgot that the prophet says that when the kingdom comes, there will be no more weeping. The old order of things will have passed away, which means God cares about the actual conditions of his children and how they live, that there will be a beating of the swords into plowshares, right? There's going to be a a (laughs) fundamental shifting of the way that humans interact with each other and how they interact with God. And the thing for me that's been so remarkable is that once that light switch flipped and I started to be able to read the scriptures through the lens of God's reconciling love for me in my Mm. relationship with him, but that also it includes how my relationships with other people work out, it changed the way that I read the Bible. Now, when I open the scriptures, I'm always thinking, where is the justice heart of God in this passage? I never had that lens when I was growing up and as I went into seminary and then as I moved into pastoring a church. Yeah. I pastored a church for 12 years and thought, well, you know, I'm sure it's something, but it was never something that I felt was necessary in terms of understanding the fullness of God's heart and his love for his creation is that whole life reconciliation. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the cross. I see Jesus hanging there. I see him not only concerned about his vertical relationship with the Father, but he does something on the cross a couple of times that seems to suggest that we should also be just as committed to horizontal relationships. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, he's dying for them, for us. Then he does something else that blew my mind as I began to study it. He looks down at his mother. I mean, if he just, I've come to save the world. That's what I've come to do. I've accomplished this. I'm headed back to heaven. You know what he did? He took time out to make sure that his mother was okay on the horizontal plane. To me, Jesus taught us that we should not only have a priority with our evangelism, you know, theological understandings and all of our rituals and trappings that we put together on Sundays and but we should also make sure that our horizontal relationships are intact. 
And that may mean who asked the question, who is my neighbor? Is it just a white guy that lives across the street from me? Or is it also that black guy in the office with me? Or is it that other little small black church down in the hood that I go by every so often to go to the ball game downtown? Am I concerned about the hurting people that I ride through their neighborhoods? We have to be concerned not only with our vertical as pastors, but also with our horizontal as pastors. One of the things that I hear a lot from you, and I think that it's the continued, and you do it so gently and kindly, (laughs) but it's the silence as complicity. Yeah. So you put yourself in these spaces in the suburbs. I, again, grew up in one of those. I am a product of, and I know that it's easy to be silent And I think sometimes our silence is that we're unsure what we should say or do. I think sometimes our silence is that we choose to not pay attention to what's happening in spaces that don't affect us. But when you say that to me, what are you trying to get at? What are you trying to help me to see as your brother in Christ when we find ourselves in these cultural moments and I say or do nothing? Right. Well, I try to challenge you. You know, I often get the privilege to go and speak to some large white congregations. And so uh, I think the first thing I must do is show them that I'm just as articulate as anyone else that may come and take that space in that pulpit. Because some white people haven't been around black people. And even sitting in a congregation and all of a sudden, once or twice out of the year, a black person is speaking to you. How I handle that moment, I realize is very critical. And then I like to go after I finish preaching out into the lobby. It's always amazing watching the people that try to get around me and those that are crying to get to me. And I've had one white male say to me, it's something about you that every time you come here, it just makes me cry. And I said, it's because I'm speaking in an area that you didn't really understand. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm not talking about God here. You're listening to a black man who has authority and you've never really been exposed to that. Not on your level. And they just, maybe that's what it is. So what I try to do is with love, but also speak to the issue. I had my neighbor come over, he's a white brother. Of mine, he said when Obama was running for president, he said, I, I don't know why I can't I just can't vote for him. I, I just don't know why I don't like him. I don't understand it, Clarence. Can you help me? I said, He's black. Oh, you're calling me a racist. No, I'm not calling you a racist. I'm telling you that you are the formation that's been baked in you from a child. Who ever taught to you that a black man could be president? No, singing and dancing, yes, that's the images we see. And I think that what I try to do, Jeffrey, with you and with my white brothers and sisters is I try to challenge them in a loving way, but in a very strong and sure way. And God has given me that gift. I have to. I don't know how many more days I have on this earth. And that's why I was challenging one of our leaders in the city. His name happens to be Tim Shapiro, who uh, leads the Center for Congregations. I was challenging him that he and his organization need to do something about 
this moment? And he responded. And here we are. And here we are. <laughs> We're not sure this is the something that, <laughs> that he intended, but <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Well, I'm hoping that the congregations that they have influence with would at some point hear these words and wisdom from us and be able to, if nothing else, feel comfortable asking more questions. Mm-hmm. Hey, Jeff, can you just share parenthetically your experience? And you heard some of that recently. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and maybe... I hear it weekly. Yeah, <laughs> weekly, yes. Yes, I pastor a white congregation, and many of them do not see or choose not to see the systems and structures that are at play around us all the time. Theologically, the only framework that I have is that we're in a system that's broken. The Bible is very clear, and evangelicals around the world believe this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right. And we assert that systemic principle, whether others agree with it or not, observable, it seems to be true that there is a problem that humans are trying to fix and they can't. We've been trying to solve it and we can't. And so it would make sense to me then if my theological starting point is that we are in rebellion to the good God who created us to live in communion with him and in communion with each other, that we will also create subsystems within the big system that just play out the sin that is already here. So I have no problem with systems thinking. It's not coming from critical theory. It's not coming from, although critical theory is helpful in identifying what some of those systems are, but our text tells us that we live in systemic rebellion. And therefore, it's not even a small step to say that sinful people living in sinful systems will continue to create and perpetuate that sin. And that sin is always towards the other, protection of self at the expense of the other. And we can apply that in so many different parts of human life, but especially and in particular with the history that we have in North America, we created a system of race, first of all, and then a system of enslaving people because of their race. And that's what I'm trying to be with our folks is to be clear as possible that this is actually a theological conversation that other people have taken up because the church hasn't. We have language for this. We should be protesting before anybody else shows up because we know that the Imago Day and everyone must be respected as a matter of the God-given creation that they are. And when that's not happening, shame on us for not standing up for it. Yeah, I think two things. When people feel like or ignore the reality that racial injustice exists, I don't know how they could really believe that logically. I think it can be a cop-out because it is a difficult reality, especially when someone looks you in the face and say, you are part of the problem. And then the response we get as African-Americans oftentimes is, but you don't understand, my parents came here with nothing. You know, we came here as immigrants and we didn't have it. I come from a poor background. And yet they don't realize, uh, as you enumerated earlier, the structural, intentional, systematic barriers that have been put up for almost 400 years now 
for people of color in America. And a word that I find very helpful in this conversation with people is a word that I got from Divided by Faith by Emerson and Smith back in 2001, I think. Man, wow, 20 years ago. But they use this term racialized. We live in a racialized society. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just such helpful language because it takes it away from me being a racist to me being in a racialized situation that I was born into. Absolutely. Right. And so it's like I didn't create this system, but now I have to acknowledge that I'm a part of the system. And as Christians, then this is where for me, pastorally, as Christians, once we locate ourselves, now we know how to respond in the way of Jesus. So if I live in a racialized society as a follower of Jesus, I've been given instructions on how to lay down my life, sacrificially love those who are experiencing the effects of this system that we are living in. So the pathway is very clear for us as Christians. We don't feel shame or guilt about it because there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we do honestly acknowledge where the problem is. And we are people who are called to be ambassadors of reconciliation as though God was making his appeal through us. And so, again, for me, this was a light bulb moment, and I don't expect this to be that obvious to everyone. But for me, once the light bulb switched, once I realized that the gospel is about both the relationship that we have with God and the relationship that we have with other humans, it started to make a little bit more sense. All of these texts that I had preached for so long had (laughs) also deeper, wider, and more relationally grounded meaning to them. Well, you know, grace does not exempt me from loving and treating my wife as I should. Right. I can't say, well, oh, I can be any kind of man because grace got me covered. And I think sometimes my white brothers and sisters that begin to see the truth, they don't want to deal with it. Then they sum it up to this whole thing that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, that's, that's good. That's very scriptural and it's theologically sound. But because grace is available does not excuse or exempt you from doing the right thing in any relationship. And so I'd still appeal to those that may feel like racism is not really real or maybe don't feel like it's really a theological issue and not a political issue. To, and I know we're going to hopefully talk about this a little later, but mm-hmm. just get some awareness. Let's sit down and just have a conversation so that maybe as you did as it related to your decision to receive Christ, your nature didn't want no part of that. You had to surrender. You had to really let go of you in order to receive that personal relationship with Christ. And you heard me say before, I hate it when my wife tells me that I'm doing something wrong or that I've been a part of something that went wrong. Mm -hmm. And I understand, to me, my white brothers and sisters sometimes put up their defenses can you just listen for a moment? And so find somebody that you trust. Because listen, pastor, listen to me, pastor. It's something that is required of you. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with thy God. Wow. That's it. That's it. It's 
in the nutshell, you can't ignore that. That's a prophetic word for prophetic pastors to not just proclaim, but to actually demonstrate. And sort of as we conclude this conversation, I think for me, and I read this every year, I read Letter from a Birmingham Jail, Mm. and I'm always struck. And for those listening, if you haven't read that, please read it. Please read it slowly. And the aspect of that letter that just convicts me still today. It's and it feels sometimes when as I'm reading it as though King could have been writing it today to us. Yeah. But it's his disappointment and his sorrow not for the white supremacist that was obviously against him but for right. what he called the white moderate. Yeah. And I think about myself if you picked me up and put me back in 1963 would I have been the white moderate who was saying, you know, I understand that this is a struggle, but if we could just take our time with it, if we could maybe find a little bit more palatable way to go about it, I wonder, and sometimes I think I am the white moderate and I'm (laughs) convicted by the fact, and I think I'm encouraged by my relationship that the urgency and the opportunity and our theological mandate from Jesus calls us to act now. Yeah, wow. And Dr. King is such a great example of one who laid his privilege down. I mean, the brother had a doctorate yeah. from Boston University. He could have filled any pulpit in America, but he laid it down because what God required of him was to be a prophet of resistance to those that were constructing systems that were adversely affecting the least of these. And Dr. King laid his privilege down. And, you know, when he died, he was so broken. It was a kind of crucifixion because he was so saddened by the fact that some of his white brothers who he felt could help, great men like Billy Graham, comes to mind. I had a privilege before he died to talk to one of the Dr. King associates, Garnacy Taylor. He was an associate with Dr. King. I had the privilege of spending some time with him. And he said that Dr. King summoned him and some other great black pastors to go and talk to Billy and say, Billy, can you help us? You have the whole nation listening to your every word. But Billy would not lay down his privilege. And he used the excuse that I'm called to preach the gospel. And somewhere in his understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, later on, Billy Graham said the one area that he was sorry about was that he didn't do more during the time of the civil rights. So he repented of that. And I think that's something we'll go deeper in as we continue our time together. Well, Pastor, I thank you for this conversation, for your friendship, for your leadership in our city, but for also your mentorship in my life. And it is time. We have got to find a way to mobilize the body of Christ in the direction of justice. And Jesus, when he showed up, he said, I've come to set the captives free. Good news for those who are 
experiencing the pain and the weight of an unjust system. I'm here to set them free and give them good news. Amen. Yeah. And that's our job. Came right in on a donkey mm. and not a stallion because he understood that the road to God's heart is to do God's will. And you can build big cathedrals and large congregations, but at some point we all have to stand before the Lord and give an account of how we got along with our brothers and our sisters of every hue, of every color, of every race. God created this rainbow for a purpose. So let's love it and let's be the custodians of it. Amen. Pastor Jeff, thank you for spending time with this old Baptist preacher, encouraging my heart and giving me the kind of fuel I need to light fires in places that are darkness. Amen. One of the things that I've learned in the journey is that I have to take responsibility for educating myself. And there are just great resources out there that have been out there, but that are being produced at a very rapid pace right now. I just wanted to give a few that have been helpful for me. I mentioned, I think already, the letter from a Birmingham jail is a profound theological <laughs> work yeah. from the floor of a jail. And so I just highly recommend if you haven't read that, or if you have, and it's been a while, read it again. There's a book that Pastor Moore and I read together with a couple of other pastors here in our city called White Too Long by Robert P. Jones. It's a history of white supremacy and racism in the church, specifically the Southern Baptist Church, Divided by Faith by Emerson and Smith mentioned that Prophetic Lament by Soon Chan Ra is a really, really helpful framework for how we engage in the pain of others. And then finally, a podcast that's been very helpful for me has been a podcast called Pass the Mic. And it's been around for a long time. Jamar Tisby, who was the founder of The Witness, and Tyler Burns hosts that podcast. It's been really, really helpful for me as I've continued on this journey. And Jamal's book, The Color of Compromise, also is a great resource. And another one I would suggest is one by a very brilliant professor out of Princeton, and that's Eddie Glaude. His book, Begin Again, uh, he takes the words of James Baldwin, and they're so prophetic. James Baldwin and Dr. King were in the same era and became good friends. And because of how, this is amazing, because of how they approached the race issue, the white man hated them, and the radical black man hated them. So they were kind of, <laughs> they were getting beat up from both sides. But when you look back at the letter from Birmingham, Dr. King words and James Baldwin words, they are profound. And so those are good readings. Begin Again by Eddie Glaude. Uh, he tells the story of how every time the 
African-American race begins to kind of come out of the gloom, something happens to set it back. And then we have to what? Begin again. Great material. Those are all good resources. There's one more. White Fragility. Please read that one. Thank you for listening to the Shades of Hope podcast, part of the Center for Congregations podcast network. If you like this episode and think it would be helpful for others, please take a moment to rate and review it on iTunes.